Burrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Rather than going to God's Word to try to back up what we already believe, going to God's Word to find out what the truth is, that's the Truth Quest. This is also a supplement to the teaching ministry at Calvary Chapel of Tucson. If you're listening to one of our studies or watching one of our videos and you have a question, then you can show up for our Q&A, write the word question before your question in the comment section, write out your question, add a reference to that question, and then you can submit it and we'll do the best that we can to be able to answer your questions. Now, for the first question today, Oh, we have a question that came from someone who was talking to me after a recent service. And they were talking about those who have never heard. And this is a question that has been brought up a lot. And in fact, those who feel strongest about whether or not <clears throat> they have, they, they feel good about this question, those who have never heard, I think it's those who don't believe in God, or I think it's the atheist. But it is surprising when you go to scripture, how much the Bible has to say about those who have never heard the message of the gospel and whether or not God is going to treat them fairly. I want to begin, first of all, in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. This is Acts 17, 26. <clears throat> Paul is in Athens. Uh, he has an opportunity to teach at the Aragopagus. This is Mars Hill. This is where philosophers have gotten together and philosophized, and Paul now will preach the gospel to the Athenians. These are people that have not heard the gospel yet. The gospel hasn't reached Athens as of this point. And so Paul says to them in verse 26 of this sermon, and he has made of from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined and their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So he's saying God has predetermined the times they will live and the boundaries of their dwellings. Notice again, he has determined them. God was the one who decided where people were going to live and what time they were going to live in. God wasn't just randomly placing people throughout eternity, but for his reasoning, he, he determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Listen, why? Why did God predetermine it? So they could seek for the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him. God determined where they were going to live and the time that they were going to live so that they would seek for him and find him. And God used the word grope for him because if you're in a place where you haven't heard the gospel, it's dark and you're going to have to grope to find him. That he is not, and then it says, though he is not far from each of us. Now think about that statement made to the Athenians that he is not far from any of us. Those living in Athens, the creator of the universe, the God of gods, their creator, the one who loves them, that God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son, isn't far from each of them that they could grope for him and find, them, find him. Now in Romans chapter 1, there's an interesting um, passage. Let me go ahead and go there. I'm going to go to Romans 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. And here we start to see more of what I call the graces that God has given to every man. So if we just take Paul's passage there, first of all, God had predetermined the time and the spaces that they were going to live in. And then that they might grow for him and find him. Now let's think about population dispersion. During the days of Jesus, it said that there were three million people on the planet. If you listen to, to evolutionists, they will say that there's been about 117 billion people on earth. And they'll start that day generally 50,000 BC. If you believe the Bible and you believe that the flood was about 4,500 years ago, that's where you would start from. And from 4,500 years ago to the time of Jesus, there would be a relatively small amount of people compared to all of the people that have been on the earth. I don't think 1.17 billion is a good number. I'm not exactly sure what would be. There are over 8 billion people alive today. What I do know is the vast majority of people that have ever been alive on this planet have been alive since about 1500 AD. If you take the number of people that have been alive on the planet 
from 15 AD until today, and then you go from 15 AD backwards, the vast majority have been around. You could go to 200 if you wanted to when the gospel is clearly being taught. In other words, God could reach out and people could hear the truth and believe in the living God. Now, I think that's really important when it talks about how God predetermined people. Now, some will say, well, maybe God knows because God knows everything and God knows who's going to be saved and God placed the people that were going to respond positively in a place where they could receive the gospel and they, they would believe. And that way, no one would uh, be, be at a point where they would hear and not believe. However, there's no passages for that. There's no scriptural evidence for that. So we have to say perhaps, and maybe that's the way God did it, but God didn't give us his word. What we do know is that God determined the places and the time that you would be born so that you would grow for him and find him because he's not far from any of you. That's what we get for sure from the Bible. Now we go to Romans chapter 1. And here in Romans 1, verse 18, we get more graces. So the first grace that we have is that God has predetermined where you are so you can grow for him. The second grace is that he's not far from any man, anyone on the earth. The, 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 the person living in an unreached people group in the middle of nowhere, God's not far from them. The Athenians that had never heard the word of God, God's not far from them. Now, in verse 18 of Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known about God is manifest in them. So now we learn what I call the third grace, that God manifests himself inside of people. He gives people something inside of them that they know that there is a God. When an atheist says, I don't believe in God, well, there was a time when he did. I'm not saying he's not being honest now. I'm saying there was a time when he believed in God because it's a manifest inside of them. And it says, for God has shown it to them. So God has shown every person that he exists, the creator. For since creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. So now we get another grace. Not only that he's not far from every man, and that he's predetermined for them to be in times and places, but that God has revealed himself to them, but God has given us creation, which tells us a lot of things about God. First of all, if there is a creature, there is a creator. This is a, a, a simple practice of logic. If I'm walking through the forest and I find a watch there in the forest, then I know there was a maker of that watch. When we look at life, we say, who's the creator? Now, you might go back and say, well, this is the God of the gaps. This is you looking back and filling God into something that has to be there. There's got to be a cause, so it must be God. And I don't think that's the case. I think you've got to go back. When, when you start going back to who is the creator, it has to be an uncaused cause. And that uncaused cause, it would be an all-knowing, all-loving God who has created the universe. And he has given creation, not so that people can know all of those things, but so you can know that there is a God. It's a very simple thing, not a very complex thing. When I was 12 years old and a neighbor of mine told me that he didn't believe in God, my response as a 12-year-old, before I was ever saved, was then who made that tree? I knew that as something simple. So here it says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that were made, even the eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because God's given it inside of them, because they have creation, because God's not far from anyone, because God has predetermined people in times and places, then they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, see, everyone knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Which sounds like it's talking about evolution, but it's not. It's talking about idols. They exchanged the glory of God for idols. Now let's go to Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 2, we find a, a similar passage, but it adds even more. And this is Romans uh, chapter 2. We're going to take a look at verse 12. Listen to what it says here. So let's just sum up what we've already talked about, that we've talked about 
God determining where people are going to live in their places and times so that they might find him, grope for him and find him because he's not far from any of them. And then God has revealed to everyone that he exists because he's revealed it in them. And then he gave them creation so that they could know God, but, they, but, but men turned away to idols. Now here in verse 12 of Romans chapter 2, it says, for as many as have sinned without the law also perish without the law. You don't have to have the law to be able to be judged because the law is written on your heart. It's going to say that. And as many as have, been, have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law are justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature of things in the law, do the things of the law. Let me read that again, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a lot of themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. So now we learn that God's done several things to every, every person that reaches adulthood. You have a law written in their heart, God revealing himself inside of them, God giving them an external creation to reveal himself to him, God determining men in times and places that they would grow for him because God's not far from any of them. Now, all of these things I'm saying are biblical. None of them are perhaps this is what God has done or maybe this is what God has done. This is what the Bible says. But it even gets more amazing in Romans chapter 2. It says, their conscience also bearing witness so now their conscience works with all of those things that we've been saying between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. When? When are they accused or excused? In the day when God will judge the secret men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So in the judgment day, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Now you'll say, but what are you saying? That someone could respond positively to the light that they've been given to these five or six graces that God has given and that they could respond positively to it and that on the day of judgment, God would not cause them to perish? Yes. You say, but they've got to come by the name of Jesus. Yes, I agree. There's no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. And how many people respond to these graces that God has given, I don't know. But what we do know is that that God has given these light to everyone and their own conscience. They can make decisions to work right in the, with the light that they've been given. So, is there anyone in the history of the Bible who never knew the name of Jesus, didn't know that he was the Messiah, that gave their life to Christ? And the answer to that is, read Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about Enoch, who believed God. Everyone's been saved by Jesus Christ including Abraham, it said he believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. So what God has done is gone to the, in the New Testament, got Jesus from the cross and accounted that in the Old Testament times, that they would have forgiveness. So when they believed and trusted by faith, then they came through the Messiah and the work of the Messiah. So there could be somebody who responds positively to the light that they have been given and they are saved through Jesus Christ so that everyone stands, as it says in the book of Romans, without excuse. And as I said, as I've covered this, this is not, I haven't put any speculation in here. There are things that we can speculate, but I'm not putting any speculation in here. Like, does God give people a chance after they die? It seems like the Bible says he does it. For there, you know, when men die, then there's judgment. Or, or it's accounted once for men to die, and then judgment. It seems the choices we make are the choices that are here. We also know that God judges differently by the different light they've been given. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Some are going to be beaten with few stripes and some will be beaten with many stripes. The one with few is the one who didn't hear and did things worthy of being beaten. The one who did hear and knew he wasn't supposed to do it was beaten with more stripes. So the more light you have, the more you know. So if you have any more any questions about those who have never heard, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this. I'll never forget the first time that I took a look at this 
and really started seeing that the Bible does clearly answer this question. It's not just a speculation that people have, but the Bible actually does it. And now the few, few verses that I gave you, there are other verses that can support these, which is a pretty amazing thing. So if you're here today for the first time, really glad to have you here. We hope that this time God would bless you, <clears throat> that you would uh, draw closer to him, that he would reach out and speak to you. That's my prayer for you, the same as it is for me. I want to walk close with Christ, and I want you to walk close with Christ. And when we blow it, keep short accounts with God. Ask Him to forgive you quickly. Let Him know your weaknesses. Look for the way of escape within temptation and walk close to Him. I love the community that we're building here, and it's good to see you guys uh, here with us. Uh, so we'll look here <clears throat> for our first question, which we have one from Pokey. Pokey says, um, a Question. Hi, Robert. Hello, Pokey. How are you? Uh, did Levi, Matthew, <clears throat> and James have the same father, Alpheus? Mark 2.14 and Mark 3.18. All right, let's take a look. Um, so that would be, you're, you're asking whether Matthew and Alphea, Alpheus have the same father. Let's look at Mark 2.13. These are sometimes a little bit hard to answer right off the top of your head, right? Um, without taking time to do any research on them. So 14. So Matthew 2.14 says, And he saw, and he passed by, let me put this up for you. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and he followed him. Now we're going to go to... 3.18, which would be pretty easy to do here. Oops, it was easy until I messed things up. So we're going to go to Mark 3. This is Mark, same one, right? Mark 3.18, yep. Mark 3.18. And let's see what this says here. Okay, this is going through the list of the disciples. Andrew, Philip, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite. All right, so I think um, what I would need to do here to determine whether James and Matthew were brothers would do a couple of things. We would need to find out how common Alpheus is for a name. I believe that back in their day, there were about 40 names that were used. And so having the same father well, having the first first name and, and second name would not be uncommon. So, in other words, you could have Jesus, the son of Joseph, and you could have a, a few Jesus, the son of Joseph, because Joseph is a common name, and so was was Jesus. Uh, so, is there just different Alpheuses? And you're getting the distinction of who you need. So, they used the first and the last name because there was only about 40 names. So, there were a lot of Marks, and there were a lot of Matthews, and there were a lot of Marys, Right? And there were even a lot of Jesuses. So you would add a second name. So if you're adding a second name, Mark the son of Alpheus and, um, or Matthew the son of Alpheus and um, James the son of Alpheus, it doesn't mean that they have the same parents. It could just be a way of identification. So it's going to be, it's possible, but, but we don't know. We do know that James and the, the other James, James, um, who is the youngest of the disciples, is related to John, all right? So um, hopefully that is somewhat helpful. Um, interesting, interesting question, all right? So we have a question from Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, um, Pastor, sometimes do you have to take chances in life to be successful? Because I believe that called has called me to be a pro boxer. I believe that, um, I'm gonna say, I, I believe that God has called you to be a professional boxer. Um, no way, Nathaniel. I don't believe God would lead you to be a boxer. I'm joking, by the way. Um, I think, um, let, me get your, um, let me get your question back in here again. I think, Nathaniel, that, yeah, life is full of risks. We step out on a limb to see what we can do. And sometimes by faith, if God's leading us, then we're stepping out on that limb by faith. Sometimes we're being aggressive in life and we're just saying, look, I'm going to go give this a shot. And if it's something that God has for me, if it's something that I can do, 
then I think that this can happen. So I think back in my own life, specifically to me being called to be a pastor, believing that when I was pretty young, 12 years old, even before I was saved, having that affirmed after I'd committed my life to Christ. I had started several businesses and I had a successful business in 1985 when I was encouraged to come out to Tucson to begin a church here and just to see what God was going to do. Now, I didn't perceive it as being risky. My, my, me and my wife had been married for three years. We had a one-year-old little girl. And um, so I could look back today and could consider it to be risky. But what would I have done had the church not gone? What, if, it, if it hadn't happened, I would have gone and looked at another business. I would have gotten another job. I would have done what I had to do. I'm, I'm encourage people to not be afraid to take risks, especially when you're young and you've got an opportunity to be able to go out and do what you want to do, what you think that you may be good at and is something that you want. Now, here's the thing. I believe what you're saying here is that you believe that God, um, I believe that, that God called to be a pro boxer. That's what you're saying. You believe God called you to be a pro boxer. And I, I like the word I believe because sometimes we're pretty dogmatic. I heard God say that I'm supposed to be a pro boxer, so I'm going. But the problem is, is you might be wrong. God doesn't speak to us audibly, so you might be wrong. So you take the steps. You step out and do it. Now, how risky is this for you, Nathaniel? How old are you? Um, do you have a family? Do you have to provide for them? Are you going to be able to provide for them while you're doing it? So when you are stepping out to, to see your dream and do it, um, one of my sons was a paramedic. He really wanted to be a PA. Uh, him and his wife had to go through over two years of really difficult financial times to be able to get him to the place where he was a PA, from a, from a paramedic to a PA. But it was something that they chose to do together, knowing that there would be difficult times. So um, I would say, and I think this is really important, when you're making decisions about something you believe God's calling you to do, you prayerfully make the decision. In other words, you pray for it diligently, maybe even fast and pray for it, where you say, I'm going to give you a couple of days, God, I'm going to seek you. And you diligently say, Lord, help me. I really want to know, do you want me to be a pro boxer? Show me, reveal this to me, and then prayerfully make a decision. I say prayerfully make a decision because if you don't, you're frozen. And that's kind of a decision in itself not to do anything. And then God's big enough. If you have made the wrong decision, which is still possible, even after you've prayerfully made a decision, it's still possible to be wrong, God can come in and redirect you because your heart is open to God and you want what God wants you to do. All right? So, yeah, I, I, I have no problem with you taking a risk. I think risks are good. Um, sometimes it's more risky for other people than it is. In other words, if I have a... Um, if I have a 60-year-old come to me and say, God's calling me to be a pro boxer, what do you think? Should I take a risk? I probably would say, you better know pretty well that God's calling you. 60 years old, you could get hurt. Not only could you get hurt, but you're pretty close to, you know, to, if you, I don't know, when uh, 65, 70, when you may be retiring, you may be putting all of that online. So you've got to look and evaluate those risks and make prayerful decisions. And that's the key part, prayerful decisions. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to hear, but you're going to make a decision while you're praying. You're giving God an opportunity to be able to say yes or no. This is such an important tool. You do the same thing when you're thinking about asking someone to marry you or responding to someone who asked you to marry them. You do the same thing when you're thinking about taking a new job, when you're talking about changing your finances significantly or taking a risk with a new job or a, um, you, you prayerfully make those decisions. All right. So um, I appreciate that, Nathaniel. It's a good question. And um, I hope that uh, the Lord blesses you as you reach out to do it. And whether or not you are successful in it, may God use it. May God use it to deepen your character and do a work within your life, which a lot of times is far more important than how successful we are. All right. So I, but I appreciate that and appreciate you guys here. Uh, we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Check, check These Hands says, uh, my sister got mad. Her Sunday school teacher 
back in 1990 when she was a kid used it as an excuse to hate all Christians. All right, I said, okay, yeah. How can I talk to her about this? She claims to be saved, but I question it. Yeah. <clears throat> I I like something. I'm trying to think exactly how it was put. Um, if a if a pianist sits down to play Beethoven and they're bad, I mean really bad, you don't blame Beethoven. You blame the person playing the piano. If, if Christians are walking Christianity poorly, then don't blame God. Come back and, and ask whether or not that person was just playing it badly. And I think that this is what happens. Now, we have to understand our responsibility that people are watching us and we are the light of the world and we are the salt of the earth. And this is why when you hear somebody say, I'll, I'll never do this because I'll never be a Christian because I went to this church and this deacon there did this to me. Then, and I had, I had Sunday school teachers who treated me bad as a kid. And, but I'm not going to blow off Christ for what some person does. It's what God that really matters. So that's how I would approach it. And um, in fact, check these hands. I think that maybe you could use some of the use some of the equipping that you can get from the book Tactics. I like it and I there's some things I don't like about it. I like in Tactics that he teaches us how to have a conversation without people being mad and how you might be able to ask some questions that can be able to allow them to put pieces on the table that you can then talk about. But uh, what I don't like about it is it could turn into manipulation. Like you're just trying to, you know, well, let me ask you a few questions. And you're just trying to manipulate it rather than really sincerely find out what they're believing and what, and what they do believe. So I would ask, I would start out by asking questions. If you don't want, I'm talking about Tactics is a great book. You can get it in audio form. You could get it in Kindle form. It's by Craig Kokel. And um, I like some of the things he says. If anybody gets mad, then everybody loses. And it's really how to have conversations with people that may be difficult and may be hard. But could be, um, but could be very beneficial if you go ahead and breach it, and, and how you might be able to do it without causing offenses. So, yeah, and I think you could, you know, share with her. Look, not all Christians are the same. Christians do fail. All of us have sin natures, and if you're gonna, you know, all human beings fail. You can't bail out of humanity because people fail. Uh, so. Um, Americans are bad, but you don't want to stop. Certain Americans are really bad, but you don't stop being an American because certain Americans are really bad. All right. So it's just a personal hurt that you want to have some compassion when you're talking to them about it. All right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I got your question right, Nathaniel. You were asking, do you believe that God has called you to be a pro boxer? And um, I say, make a prayerful decision about it. Sometimes God asks us to give things up, right? If you're going to follow Jesus, deny yourself and pick up your cross. And so you really want to figure out, are you hearing this uh, yourself or is this something that God is telling you? All right. Thanks, Nathaniel. I appreciate that. And thank you. Uh, fact check these hands for your question. Um, so we have a question from Jari on, on Frank Turek. Frank Turek um, is an apologist and he was at our church for the Unshaken Conference this last week. And then he taught um, for me on Sunday. We actually kind of taught a little bit together. Um, follow up on Frank Turek. Is it true we can legislate? Is it true we can legislate morality? I hear from Christians and non-believers alike that we can't. That murder is a civil issue not a moral issue. All right, Jari, I think that's a great question. But let's just think about this. Is, is murder a moral issue? Or is it only a civil issue? If you go back and you look at the definition of what is moral. Let me see if I can take a moment to pull that up and just pull it up on the screen. Um, I'll just take me a couple seconds to do this. All right, I almost got it up. Let's see if I see if I did this right. All right, let me go ahead and put up the definition of mora of moral here. Okay, moral. 
um, concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior and the goodness and badness of human character, holding or manifesting high principles of proper conduct. A lesson, especially in ones concerning what is right or prudent, can be derived from a story, a piece of information. A person's standards of behavior or beliefs concerning what is and, and is not said to do them. So, I don't see any one of these different types of the way that the word moral is used that would, would take murder out of it to say it's not moral. If it's a principle of right and wrong, murdering people wrong, not murdering people, good. Okay? That it's, it's a moral issue. And so, if you want to just try to say civil issues, what you're trying to do is make your own categories to be able to do something or not do something, and that's genuine, uh, genuinely a bad thing to end up making your own categories. Um, everything that the, we legislate in law, when a law legislates, um, what constitutes violating the SEC violates the SEC when it comes to tweeting. So, in other words, the SEC oversees anything that issues shares or issues some, some kind of a, you know, let's just say a cryptocurrency. Like, um, if there's an issue to the, to the cryptocurrency, then the SEC is involved in that. And so, if they make a rule that you can't tweet about, once you tweet about your, uh, your whatever you're issuing, let's say that you are on the board of Apple and you make a statement about Apple shares then you sell them the next day. You're in trouble because they see that as being right or wrong. And most of us would agree with it. If they're trying to pump and dump, they're trying to pump something up so that they can dump it and make money, that's wrong. That's a moral issue. And so, they've made that law. And I think that almost every law is a moral law. You, we could say speeding is a moral law because they're trying to keep people safe on the streets. To speed around and end up hurting or killing someone is immoral. To be careful on the road when you're driving is moral. So, yes, I do believe that we can legislate morality. And I think that this statement, that it's a civil issue, that murder is a civil issue, is quite frankly, just laughable. Murder, um, rape, um, fighting for the unborn, all of these things are moral issues. And, and we absolutely can legislate morals. And we need to be involved in it. And this is what we talked about this weekend. We need to be involved in voting. Only half, half of evangelical Christians vote. That's it. Half. And when we think about how close the last presidential election was, Christians could make a difference. When we think about how close things are in Arizona, then Christians can make a difference if they show up and vote. And um, I'm going to encourage people to be involved politically and to know when someone says to me, you can't legislate morality, you can't tell me how I'm supposed to live. Uh, like Frank Turek said, well, you're, te you're telling me how I, you're giving me a morality. If I'm supposed, you're telling me how I'm supposed to live, that I can't legislate morality. Why do you get to tell me I can't legislate morality, but I don't get to tell you how to, or I don't get to tell people how to legislate morality. All right. So, um, I think that's a really good question, Jari, and I think it's absolutely silly to call it a civil issue, um, not morality. Um, and just when we go back and look at it, all right, I think the civil authorities have a responsibility for keeping us safe. And someone stealing from me is immoral. Someone murdering me is immoral. Someone attacking me and taking what is mine is immoral. And the government has to stand behind us on that. All right. Thank you, Jari, for your question. By the way, I just want to remind you that our Q&A is a supplement to the teaching ministry at Calvary Tucson. So, if you have a question about the teachings or when you're listening to the teachings, whether it's a short form hop topics, one of these Q&As, or uh, our teachings, then you can write that question down. Then you can come to um, the, you can come either to the actual Q&A or you can go to an old Q&A and you can ask the question there and I could use it as one of my first questions on the Q&A. All right. So, uh, Maury asked a question about, uh, Jari asked a question about what um, Frank Turek had said this weekend. 
All right. That was the name of his message. Can we legislate morality? It was a very good study, by the way. So um, long story as a question. Do you think our glorified bodies will be bloodless and sterile? There is so much doctrine about blood and seed in Revelation. It seems logical. Is it uh, Shekinah-related? Maybe. Well, I think the way people use the word Shekinah is so different. I don't know that I, I want to even try to chime in on that. Um, glory-related, you know, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Um, but that's a, a hard question. What will the nature of our resurrected bodies be? We know this corruptible will not put on, will put on incorruptible. This mortal will put on immortality. We know that we will be like Jesus and he could go into places where doors were locked and, and um, windows were barred. We know that Jesus sat down and ate. We also know that there's going to be a fruit in the new heaven that we're going to be able to eat. We also know we have the marriage supper of the lamb. However, we also know that we are like the angels in eternity and that the aspect of sexuality, when I'm talking about actually having sex, is for here and now, not for eternity. And so, I, I don't know. I'm just going to have to give an I don't know about what the nature of our body would be. It would certainly seem to me like we would have blood. Would we be sterile? Would we all of a sudden not have sexual organs? Would we not present ourselves as a man or a woman um, in eternity? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, those are, are questions that um, I've never thought about, and maybe maybe they're over my pay grade. All right? Maybe someone else would be able to answer that a little bit better. But thank you. Long story for the question. Um, yeah, uh, Christopher says, Why do you think that Paul wrote my gospel? I think that it comes down to the way that, um, let me see if I still got that. I don't think I still have that up in, in the Bible there. Um, I don't. I, we went on from there. So that's Romans 2.12. Is that right? Romans 2.12. Well, there are several ways in which we see that Paul uses the word gospel. So in the Bible, he talks about the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. When he's in Romans and he's talking about the actual response He's talking about response from his gospel. In other words, the people that he's talking about specifically there have heard the gospel preached by him, the gospel he was bringing. His gospel is not distinct from the apostles' gospel. How do we know that? Because Paul made a trip to Jerusalem. And Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians because he knew if I'm teaching something different than what the apostles who were with Jesus are teaching, then I'm wrong. And Paul says, they added nothing to me, meaning what I taught and what I believe is correct and right, so that he is teaching what the disciples taught, that Paul's gospel was not any different. I think he said my gospel there because of uh, specifically, and I'm just going to see if I can find this really quick, um, for as many have sinned without the, um, I'm so sorry, the conscience, uh, yeah, let me go ahead and just bring this up here and see if I can bring it up on the, the stage. Conscious bearing them witness themselves in that when the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So he's telling them what he believes. And I do wonder, and I'm not sure about this because I don't know Greek. I do wonder the way that Greek uses certain possessive um, parts of, of language. Um, I do know like when you're, you're talking to someone from another place that, that their language does not, their language does not use the word um, the. So they'll say things like, in English, they'll say things like, um, I went to, um, I took a drive in car. So they don't say I took a drive in the car. We would say I took a drive in the car here, but they say that I took a drive in car and I really liked it. And so constructs within languages are different. 
And I don't know, I would want to look into that specifically. I don't think Paul was saying, my gospel is different than their gospel. I just think he says, this is the gospel that I preach. That's what my gospel is. There are those who believe that he wrote a di- that his was different, but they don't have any evidence for that. And when we see that he actually was concerned about it and went to them and talked to them, that he believed the same thing that they believe. And uh, we can also build this um, salvation through James and John and the other disciples. Okay. So thank you very much for the question. I appreciate that. Um, if I were writing it, I wouldn't put it that way, but we don't know how it is in the Greek, right? Um, so Albert says, hello, pastor. I did some research and most theologians believe that David did not take any of Saul's wives as his own. Hey, I did some research on that too. And I found out the same thing. He merely took care of them um, because they were widows and he felt a responsibility to the king that was before him. So he took care of them. So saying that, um, had I given you more, when he says to him, look, I made you king. I gave you a kingdom and you took care of the wives of the, the king before you, Saul's kings, Saul's wives, and I would have given you more. He's not including more women to be able to have sex with. And if we just go back, Albert, let's go just go back to that question, which was given in a prior Q&A, maybe even our last one, since we didn't have one on Saturday, maybe last Wednesday. The question was asked, was God approving to David having multiple wives? When God talked about creating marriage, he said, a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother, and the two shall be joined together and become one flesh. It was a common practice in the ancient world for a man to have concubines, for a man to have a couple of wives. It was a common practice among the people. God talked about a man and a woman leaving. And anytime you find polygamy in the Bible with uh, Jacob, with Abraham, uh, with, um, with other people as you just study your way through, you find that there were problems. And that God was not, and David is a great example of that. David had so many problems in his home. His, one of his sons from one wife raped his daughter of another one, the Absalom's sister. And it's just a sad, tragic account. And I think it is all connected to what David did, especially when he took Bathsheba and killed Uriah. And the things in his life were never good after that. I've had people ask me questions say, saying, doesn't it seem like God doesn't mind if we have more than one woman because there was more than one woman in the Bible? Yeah, but you got to go back to the direction that God gave. I'm not saying yes. I'm saying you have to go back to the direction God gave and then look at all the problems people had when they had polygamy and we walk away going, no, when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. When a man finds 10 wives, like in, in early Mormonism, bad thing, okay? All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate you bringing that up, um, Albert. Um, I had also heard, I was listening to the latest Q&A by Mike Winger, and I had also heard him being asked the exact same question. And um, he had given kind of that same response that I gave, kind of like, I need to go back and look, but I don't think he ever slept with them, which was exactly what I had said. All right. Um, okay. So I'm just looking for another question here. Again, it's good to see you guys. We have a question from Melissa, Melissa Cadman. Melissa says, can women be pastors, preachers, reverends? If not, what roles can they do? Deacon, elder in ministry. Thank you, pastor. Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate that. So you are touching on a theological issue of complementarian and egalitarian. Complementarian would believe that a man and a woman are equal and have different roles that complement each other. Egalitarians would believe, believe that men and women are equal and that they can do anything. Anything you can do, I can do as well. Not a maid I can do better, but anything you can do, I can do as well. I believe that the Bible teaches that there is a role difference between men and women. And there are certain things that women should not do. Uh, there is a also a wide range of what people would believe within egalitarianism and within complementarianism. For example, I, 
I wouldn't have a problem calling a woman who oversees a Sunday school department the, you know, pastor, children's pastor. A lot of churches, not uh, of complementarian churches would. I don't have a, a problem calling a woman's, a director, a woman's pastor. Now, we don't do that um, in our church. Our woman's director is the woman's director. Our children's director is the children's director. Right now, it's a man, but we've had a woman before, and they've always had that role um, instead of as a pastor, and they may be doing pastoral work. I mean, think about it. Women, older women were to teach younger women and children. So, if they were teaching younger women and children, then I got to put my, um, I'm going to put my uh, do not disturb on. That way you won't keep hearing dings throughout this. Then it's okay for them. So we had the Unshaken Conference at our church this last week. And we had Natasha Crane teaching biblical principles. We had Elisa Childers, Alyssa Childers, Alisa Childers teaching biblical principles of Frank Jurek teaching them. So someone came to me and said, do you think it's okay for us to have at our church a woman teaching the Bible? My response to him was, is sharing about, is, 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 is giving a speech on something that you believe on a spiritual level outlawed in the Bible? Are they taking the, are they taking, are they taking the pulpit? Sorry, are they taking, looking for a glass of water around here. I don't have one. Are they taking the pulpit and are they preaching uh, like they would have authority over the Word of God. Now, the answer to that is no. And I believe Elisa Childers and Natasha Crane would not go and speak somewhere like Frank Turek did for us on a Sunday morning because they are complementarian. I know for sure Elisa Childers is complementarian. I've heard her talk about it. I don't know about Natasha Crane. Uh, when, when we had Natasha Crane for our pastor's conference last year, and we wanted her to address the the idea of children's ministry and introducing apologetics, we had her interviewed by one of our assistant pastors. When Elisa Childers came to our church on a Wednesday night, I interviewed her. Now, she's giving all the same information that she would give if she was standing up and teaching, but there's something about that teaching time um, for the apostles' doctrine that we would not have a woman share at. But as far as a woman who is an expert, let's just say on the, in the field of archaeology or as apologetics, and they're going to talk to us about apologetics, I don't see a problem with that. I wouldn't do it within a service, but I don't see a problem with that. Some people might. Um, I don't believe that a woman should have the role of senior pastor, and um, so um, hopefully that'll answer your question. Um, yeah, they do have different roles, and uh, Melissa, there's a lot more on it. Um, if you're interested in it, I talked about Mike Winger in his latest Q&A. He's got several videos on women in ministry, and I don't think he's completed it completely yet, but um, he's got several videos on it, and you're going to get the information that you need. You can go to his podcast, BibleThinker.com. You can uh, be subscribe to his podcast, go back in time and, and find his the start of his women in ministry, and then listen to that while you're driving. I think uh, you could probably do that through YouTube too by looking up women in ministry. And um, you're going to get a lot more information on what the Bible says. He does a very thorough job on it. All right. And um, I think it's probably the best resource that there is out there today. So thank you very much. Uh, we have a question from John Campbell. John, good to see you. Good to have you on the show. John says, Frank Turk encouraged us to become involved. Uh, where is the balance? Many are advocating um, insurrection on one end and others are advocating just praying for our leaders and voting. So, boy, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So, I think the truth would be somewhere in between insurrection and just praying for our leaders and voting. I think that where we're involved is going to be a bell curve for sure. Some are going to be more involved and some are going to be less involved in it. Let's just talk about the idea of insurrection for a moment. Now, that word's been thrown around here a lot lately. I'm not sure. I would not. I don't think that the January 6th was an insurrection. Okay? I just don't think it was. Um, I think that's been overplayed for political purposes. 
let's, what if our government did? What if our government did what Venezuela did and they brought in a dictator? And now we don't have the Constitution of the United States anymore. Is being involved in an insurrection all right? If they've abandoned the United States of America? Or is the person that has taken control of it, is, is that the person now that we have to be subject to if they let a coup and stole the government? So is, insur is insurrection ever really right? I would think there are certainly times when it is. Uh, just praying for our leaders and voting, I think that's the bare minimum for what we should do. I want to be involved on the issues of the day. Um, not telling parents that your child, encouraging a child who is confused about their gender and then not telling their parents about it or maybe encouraging them to take hormone blockers or even surgery, we go back to the moral question, is immoral to do that to parents? And I think that we should, we should be involved in these things. We should be involved in the public discussion. Again, we should be involved in the public discussion in, in the right way, but I think that we should be involved in it. And I want to be able to have those conversations with people and I think that they are legitimate questions to be talking about from the church. I do think you can get too political to where all you're dealing with is politics from the church. You're, you're, like, a, you're like another show on Fox News. You're just going to bring up all of the things that they talk about on, on, you know, that are going on. And we would stay away from that. We preach the gospel. We, we teach the Bible. But there are definitely issues that we need to talk about. And I, and I think that the truth is somewhere in between these two but, of course, not praying for our leaders and not voting, to me, is not an option. We need to vote. We need to be praying for our leaders. And insurrection, it may come about that insurrection, and insurrection might be right from, let's just say that someone who's, who's right-leaning um, doesn't leave office. They call a state of emergency, and they are a conservative, and they take control of our government. Then the other side leads an insurrection to take the government back. Now, as long as they're legitimately taking the government back and not just trying to get in power themselves, then I think an insurrection is correct. So we've got to come back to what the word insurrection means. All right? So now people are going to say, Robert was encouraging an insurrection. I can hear it now. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, there's a, um, there's a line in between both of those. All right? Let's see. Um, Albert says, hi, just a comment related to my question last week. Hopefully, he sees it. Yeah, let me go backwards, um, Albert, and look. Because if you wrote that, maybe you've already wrote it here. Let me go back and look and just see if I pick it up. Yeah, so I, I think I already got that on, on your research. Yeah, I think I already got that. Thanks, Albert. I appreciate I appreciate you following through with that, by the way, because I had forgot about that. I wanted to cover it and... Um, I forgot about it. So let me see if I can pick out another question here. Um, Nathaniel says, um, question, thank you, pastor. Keep being you. Don't change for no one. And then you said, hashtag God did. And uh, thank you, Nathaniel. I appreciate that. I will, um, I will change for God. God convicts me. I want to change for him. And um, I, I know that that's what you mean, Nathaniel, but I think that's good for us to say, look, there, if there's anything in my life that is not pleasing to him, then I want God to change that. I believe that with every temptation, there's a way of escape. I believe we walk in the spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And um, I want to keep I want, to, I want to keep the convictions that I have, but I want them to be biblical. I want them to be right. I want them to be true. I want them to be on God's side. And if I find out I'm, I'm believing or something that isn't true, then I would want to change that. All right. So thank you very much, Nathaniel, though. I appreciate it. And again, um, the Lord bless you on your endeavors. I hope you don't get hit too hard too often. All right. So um, Gerard has a question. He says, um, the new world order is real. The WHO 2030 agenda is also anti-God. Why isn't the church warning their people about it? Um, well, for one thing, 
the new world order is real. I'm not sure how real the new world order is. The 2 and 2030 agenda is anti-God. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to get their agenda into play. So, that's why I haven't addressed them. So, here I am. I'm in the church and I'm not getting up and warning people, you know, the new world order is real and you better watch out for them. Um, I want to stay away from what would be, what would fall into more of the conspiracy theory. And I'm not saying that these two are, okay? I don't know enough about them. But I believe that God can bring to my attention the things that he wants to bring my attention to that we can talk about. And, you know, the the agenda for the new world order, I'm not going to spend time from the pulpit talking about how bad the agenda for the new world order is. So that's just me, Gerard. There, there, are, there are pastors who will, and um, I'm not saying they're wrong. They especially won't be wrong if we find ourselves under an anti-God agenda under the WHO, which the WHO is the World Health Organization. And the New World Order is the idea of a one world government. And I don't know that we're, we're going to be able to stop that. If a one world government's on its way, it's fulfillment, and the Antichrist is in it, uh, we may be able to identify it, but I don't know that we'll be able to stop it. All right? So, um, yeah. Um, if you have any more questions about that, you'd like a follow-up, I would appreciate that, Gerard. Um, but I... I see certain things that I need to address and certain things that I don't want to start addressing. When they become more solidified, I might. All right. So uh, we have a question from Jari about last Wednesday's teaching. Uh, Jari, ha- Jari says, um, follow-up, Wednesday's teaching had to ask, will God make brand new animals instead of the original ones? Uh, new heaven and new earth. And also, does he use the same, some animals to make the pearly gates. Yeah, I I mean, it's pearl, so it seems like it. Seems like there's some big oysters that are going to be able to make gates. It would seem like that. I don't know if there's any evidence of anything being that big. That'd be something interesting to look into. Um, will God make new animals for the new heaven and the new earth? I don't know. Um, he could. All right, so thank you, Jari, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, uh, so Empress Kimberly says, I'm sorry to hear this, Kimberly. My mom passed away this weekend and my family behaved horribly. Sorry for both of those. I understand what it's like to lose someone who's close to you. You said um, drinking pictures, etc. in her room as she was dying. I put a stop to it and now everyone hates me. I don't know what to do. Well, um, Kimberly, Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword and the, the, to divide fathers from, from sons and daughters from mothers. And this means family members sometimes are not going to like the stances that we, that we take. And what you do, you do out of love. And Kimberly, I take it, you probably don't feel very comfortable with people being upset at you. So you, you want to try to make things as smooth them over as much as you can. There are certain times where if people are upset at you, then so be it. You know, they're upset at me, so be it. There are certain things that you teach from the Bible knowing that people are going to get upset. And at that you go, so be it. Um, but with, with relationships and family, um, you want to respond in a good way. But um, I'm not so sure you didn't do what was right. And so what do you do? Um, you stand by what you believe and, and did. And, you know, if you felt like you were out of line with anyone in particular, then I would go to them and apologize. But at some point, you've just got to make a stand. And it might be, you know, hey, what are you guys doing? Stop this, you know. It might be that, okay? So I don't know all of the details, Kimberly. If you would like to sit down and talk with someone about what happened, like what kind of things were said, what kind of things um, they are angry with you about, then maybe there can be some more how you responded to it. You might be able to get a more direction whether or not you owe an apology. I realize you can't talk about all that stuff here. Neither is this the place for that. But certainly um, um, sitting down and talking with a pastor or a counselor would be a place where you could find um, some more direction on that. 
Um, thank you, Keith, for putting up the uh, Mike Winger's full podcast on women in ministry. Um, yeah, he, I, I, I hope that's the playlist. Yeah, it is the playlist. It is the playlist because there's a lot of them. I think I don't know how many he's got. He's got a couple more that are going to be coming as well. All right. So we are close to the end of our Q&A for today. Um, uh, just a reminder that this is a supplement to the teaching ministry where I pastor. If you guys have watched tonight, and we're going to be talking about the first six verses in Revelation 22, we're going to be talking about what we are going to be doing in heaven. There's some amazing things that are in here. And if you have questions about that next week, um, then you can bring them in. If you want to go watch the two studies that I did on hell, I did one called um, the, the Fate of the Ungodly. I did another one called The Nature of Hell. And if you um, want to watch those and come back and ask questions about that, we'd love to be able to take that. So there's a lot of information out there. Um, we have 46 studies on the book of Revelation. Tonight will be the 46 studies, 46th study in the book of Revelation. So we've done a lot on it. Really good to hang out with you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Be open to listening to him. Be like the psalmist who prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. And see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Find yourself drawing closer to Christ. Walk in, the, walk in the Spirit. Delight in the Lord. And look for the way of escape with every temptation. And may God give you the ability to be able to escape in those times. All right? God bless you guys. Love you. Uh, we'll see you. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be having a, um, a Q&A this coming up Saturday. And um, you can come back to this on YouTube and ask your question. If you have a question you would like to use as the first question for our study, our, our Sunday, our Saturday Q&A. All right. God bless you guys. Um, we have a service in an hour, six o'clock, um, talking about Revelation 22. And there's some great stuff there. A very rich passage. I look forward to covering that with you. God bless you guys. We'll see you later on.